Welcome to the My Buddy Green podcast. I'm Jason Wachab, founder and co-CEO of My Buddy Green, and your host. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The UN estimates there will be eight times more centenarians in the world by the year 2050. And half of today's five-year-olds can expect to live to 100. Welcome to the era of super aging. But as we know, longevity is not just about adding more years to your life. How do we stay happy, healthy, and mobile well into our 80s, 90s, and even hundreds? William J. Cole is here to find answers. He is a veteran reporter, editor, and foreign correspondent who has researched what we can all learn from the longest living people. Think Jane Goodall and Jean Calment, who famously lived to 122 years and 164 days. What are some of the common themes you found to be really interesting in your personal research of the longest living humans? Well, you know, I actually covered the the very longest living human when I was based in Paris for AP, uh, Jean Calment, who lived to 122 years and 164 days, and uh, never uh, got a you know one-on-one conversation with her, but covered her as she held news conferences and so forth. And I think you know a takeaway with her, and you see this with centenarians and super centenarians, the oldest of us, uh, an incredibly positive attitude. I mean, this was a woman who liked to crack jokes. At 121, she said, "I only have one wrinkle." And my, I'm sitting on it, which is somewhat hilarious, I think, especially for that age. She said she stopped wearing mascara because she laughed so much. She was crying it off all the time. So I think we, we probably should, you know, think about that a little bit. There's a lot we can talk about genetics and so forth, but our attitude is absolutely critical. Yeah, You, you mentioned genetics. What role do you think, obviously, genetics plays a role, but what did you learn in the research of your book about the role that genetics does play in determining our, our fate? Right. So the latest research into centenarians suggests that they occur roughly in one in 5,000, pretty much around the world. You know, so there's that's that's just a ratio that speaks to our genetic wiring. Uh, there are those of us who kind of, you know, hit the genetic jackpot. That said, there are lots of behaviors that uh, are also part of the equation. So, you know, and that's good news for us. You know, I don't think any of us really likes to think too much about the genetic piece. We want to be in control of our destinies and certainly of our aging journeys. But uh, some of it's out of our control, but a lot of it is firmly within our control. 
So genetics um, accounts for about 75% of what gets us to 90. And then as you go from 90 to 100, and then thereafter, the genetics piece grows and it kind of all flips. Uh, so the, by the time you're, you know, 100, 105, uh, the genetics piece is the predominant piece. But, you know, you cannot live to 100 unless you've hit 90. <laughs> so I think that's great news for those of us who want to live long and healthful lives. So I'm curious on the genetics piece. I'm sure we have listeners saying, I'm curious if I have this gene. Offhand, do you happen to know any more detail? I know you go into it in the book about like this genetic jackpot, what that entails for those who want to dig deeper to see if they hit the longevity lottery, if you will. There is not yet a, you know, a, a conclusive test that you can take or some kind of blood screening uh, near Barzilai um, at the Albert Einstein College in New York has done extensive research and has isolated what he calls a longevity gene. Uh, but so far, you know, there's no great test available, you know, that you can take or a swab of your cheek or something like this, you know, to determine, oh, I've got the gene or genes, plural, that it's going to get me to 100. But you can, you can look, you know, there's a, there's an interesting calculator that I would encourage listeners to try out at livingto100.com. And this is a calculator developed by Tom Pearls, one of the leading gerontologists in the United States. Uh, you, you put in your, your family histories and, and your, your, your habits, your diet, your exercise, and also whether anybody in your family has you know, reached these fantastic ages. And it spits out a result. For me, it gave me 102. So, uh, you know, kind of a kind of a, a shocking thing to see that on your screen. So there, there are some of us that have great family histories, and many of us don't. I don't have a great family history, but I believe in the power of lifestyle modification. And so, you started off with with the power of joy. What what other things do you learn along the way in your research that we can do today? regardless of our genetic makeup, they're going to pay huge dividends in terms of our, our longevity. Right. Well, there, there are plentiful things. So first of all, of course, our diet. Much has been said and written about the Mediterranean diet. We see the benefits of that across the blue zones. A lot of people have followed it with great success. And, you know, uh, it doesn't just speak to how many years we'll live, but how healthy those years will be. So eliminating or cutting way back on red meat uh, is something that a lot of centenarians have in common. Uh, and, and we know that, you know, this is good for us. Exercise, of course, is critical, not just for our bodies, but our minds, for handling toxic stress, which is the enemy of longevity. Anything we could do to get out of a toxic stress situation will add years to our lives, full stop. In fact, it's one reason why I exited uh, the 24-hour news cycle as a journalist for the Associated Press, because I realized as I was researching the book that I was always under enormous stress. Now I work at it in a different rhythm. So those are some things right off the bat. And then there are some other more behavioral and, and psychological aspects. What are, let's talk about those, because I, I think most people get the exercise nutrition piece, and I will add that nutrition often varies for some people. Uh, you know, some people can't touch red meat and others can have it every day. That's where I think that, you know, with personalization, that's where that's going. So with regards to some of the other behaviors, well, let, let's go there. So you mentioned joy. Uh, centenarians, 
whom I interviewed for the book and uh, many centenarians who've been studied worldwide, just seem to be joyful individuals. Uh, I guess the other side of that coin is, you know, positivity. There was a fascinating study done a couple of years ago out of Yale that showed that if we can be positive about our own aging journey, be upbeat about growing older and, and have that sort of mindset, we can actually add as many as seven and a half years to our lifespan, which is more than what you get by watching your cholesterol. And, you know, in my case, as a marathon runner, you know, putting in the miles and, and things like that. It's um, it's astonishing. Uh, there are other uh, other things that add uh, to our lives, potentially. Married people tend to live longer than than single people. But we scientists have been looking into this and find that it's also uh, a phenomenon with platonic relationships. So in other words, deep friendships can can give us the same benefit. That speaks to loneliness, which I, I know we'll talk about a little bit. So that's a thing. And uh, faith, interestingly, seems like it adds years to our lives, uh, potentially. And it doesn't matter whether it's Christianity, Judaism, Buddhism, Islam. Studies have been done that suggest that, that, that people who believe, uh, have a religious belief, uh, tend to live up to five and a half years longer than people who don't. Um, and why is that? Well, you know, researchers are thinking that it mostly has to do with the uh, community aspects of belief, of people gathering um, and, you know, uh, hanging out together. And and there's a benefit to that. Well, that, that that's a big thing. You know, I, I think, you know, loneliness, faith, I'll segue to community. And you have a quote in the book. You know, let's say we, we're doing all the right things and we get to 80. But the fact is, and this is a quote, most people over 80 live alone. They have few people to talk with. Age lives of quiet desperation are sadly not rare. Now, was it quoted from another essay by sociologists in the book, I believe, that you referenced? But th that that's that's a big deal. I think where faith comes in, my view here is if you are going to some sort of church or, or, or place of worship, that's where you're getting your community, your connection, IRL. And I, I think there's another piece of this where, where faith and hope get you through adversity, like the stress, the toxic stress that we invariably all, all face. But let's spend a moment on that because I think it really gets to, I think, a larger point, which you touch on the book, is the fact is technology, and we will touch on some of the technology you're, you're talking about, well, I'll take a step back. If lifestyle modification can only get us like so far, call it 80, 90, it's going to vary by people. That This is where technology comes in and can extend our lives, which a lot of people are very excited about and dabbling with. But then it brings back to this larger point of like the first wave. So let's say you're part of this first wave of people that are living to north of 100, but then no one else is. Right. Yeah. It's a daunting prospect. You know, I mean, look, Loneliness is a public health crisis. The U.S. Surgeon General has declared it uh, such. And, uh, you know, it's, it doesn't certainly only affect uh, old people, by the way. You know, there are, there are millennials and Gen Z folks who are desperately lonely. Uh, but, you know, loneliness is, is a real problem. And the National Institute on Aging says that, you know, being chronically lonely has uh, adverse health effects that can actually take as many as 15 years off of our lives 
And uh, they say it's like it's like smoking 15 cigarettes a day. That's a lot. My second favorite stat on that next next in line with smoking is the equivalent of six drinks a day. So that's 42 drinks a week. <laughs> yeah. And and there are also scientists who liken, uh, you know, loneliness to obesity and the and the adverse effects that that has on our health. So it's a real problem. And, you know, uh, it's kind of ironic, right? Because we're more socially connected than we've ever been as a human race. And yet uh, we are lonely and there's no substitute for FaceTime. And I don't I don't mean the, you know, the app on your phone. I mean, actual, you know, FaceTime with, a, with another human being, the milk of human kindness, if you if you will. We need to deal with this. And, you know, in the book, I kind of take a, a, a sweeping look at, you know, whether society is ready for us to be aging in, in great numbers, uh, which which we are and will be. And uh, the, the simple answer is no, we're not. You know, and this loneliness question is is a is a big one. Yeah, and, and building off of the loneliness question, you know, there, there's a big. It was it's been picked up by like every major news outlet that cancer rates are rising at an alarming pace among those who are younger. Uh, however, treatment has improved dramatically, which is great. Uh, and there are various hypotheses floating around the, the algorithms in, in, in the world I inhabit. It's a lot of ultra processed food uh, and obesity is what's driving this. And, and I, I tend to agree that's a big part of it. But in my view, it's also loneliness. We know that this generation is very lonely, the younger generation. And I think we tend to, even though it's been essentially declared a national emergency, we still tend to discount this when we go to a doctor, you know, We'll do our, our labs, uh, but there's very, there's not really dialogue around the social connection you're enjoying every day or, not, or, or, or lacking every day. Yeah, that's right. And of course, when you're old, uh, when you're very old, uh, you have often outlived, you know, your partner. You've outlived children in some cases, especially when we're talking about hundred somethings. Uh, many cases they've lived longer than their, their kids are gone. Their friends are gone. And, uh, you know, people also, it's interesting, we, we like to think in the United States about, you know, what old age looks like. And for many of us, the gold standard, apart from maintaining our cognitive abilities, of course, is, you know, living at home, aging in place. Um, and that's all great, except that, you know, that can leave us, again, very physically isolated when, when we're in a big house somewhere and, you know, we're all by ourselves. So it's, it's a problem. And, and it, you know, the inflammation that that uh, unleashes in the body, uh, the effects that go right down into the mitochondria in our cells uh, really affects our, all of our well-being. Are you a fan of more urban living for longevity in that you're walking around, you're more likely to have social interactions on a daily basis versus a rural setting where you're perhaps getting in a car to go everywhere? Yeah, I mean, you know, theoretically, uh, you'll bump into more people in a city, but, you know, people can also be desperately lonely in cities. And, you know, they're in their little apartment and they have you know, no contact with anyone. So it's, it's, it's not really just simply an answer of move to the city. Uh, we really need to just connect with each other. And I think that, you know, all generations need to be mindful of one another. And there I see some beautiful experiments in other parts of the world 
where the generations, where there are like intergenerational contacts that enrich the young and the old. And, and it's, it's beautiful. Uh, we can take a page from their playbook. Yes. What's an example of that? So um, one that I love is in Australia, there are, there's a program called the, the Centenarian Portrait Project, where high school students are meeting with 100-year-old seniors in their assisted living facilities or in their homes if they're still fortunate enough to be living independently. And the kids are sketching, sculpting, and painting their elders. And of course, during this time, there's a lot of conversation going both ways. And so you have this incredible, you have friendships actually between, you know, 16 year olds and 103 year olds. And uh, it's, it's just lovely. Japan has a, a, a pilot program that they've been expanding where they have toddlers. They, they call them, I think, uh, infant workers or something like that, which sounds a little alarming. But what it amounts to is just parents bringing their toddlers to a nursing home and letting the kids play at the feet of these very old people who are delighted. And, you know, again, the kids get to understand a little bit more about these older people who are a curiosity. Uh, and there are stories told back and forth. And uh, and the parents, by the way, are paid with uh, baby formula and diapers as sort of like a stipend. You know, I, I love that because I think that's a real opportunity for us here in America where I do think ageism comes into play here. Uh, I think culturally, sometimes people tend to see elders as a drain rather than a source of wisdom and experience and knowledge. Um, I, I love it. I really do. You're absolutely right about ageism. You know, it's it's the most prevalent of all of the isms. You know, I mean, we've you know, we're we're still fighting to contain and conquer racism and sexism and, you know, all of those. But, you know, ageism seems to just rage unabated. And AARP uh, does a regular survey um, asking people 55 and older, 65 and older, 85 and older, if they've experienced age discrimination. And the vast majority of respondents say, yes, I have. You know, we live in a very youth-oriented culture where we kind of worship um, younger people, young bodies, uh, younger minds. And, uh, yeah, again, this is an area in the book that I explore. What, what's going to happen when we have eight times as many 100-year-olds uh, in 2050, just a little over two and a half decades from now, than we do now? And it, how is that going to, what's that going to look like when we really are very youth-obsessed? What's that? I think there's a famous line from no matter how you feel about Reagan. It was a great line when he, I think he was in a debate and was challenged about his age. And he said, I, I won't expose my, my candidates youth and inexperience or something like that. That's right. Yeah. And then, and of course everyone laughed, including his opponent. And, uh, and he went on to win by the biggest landslide ever seen in presidential politics. So let's talk about retirement. Uh, and the role retirement plays in longevity. Working longer give us a better shot at living longer? It absolutely does. We were talking earlier about, you know, some of our psychological and mental ways of, of approaching aging. And um, purpose is a huge one. You know, I, for the book, I interviewed Jane Goodall, who 
this year is going to turn 90. Uh, so she's, she's still a little out from 100, but she is working uh, like she never has before. She's working and traveling more than she did, you know, as a young woman working with Louis Leakey in Tanzania with the chimps. And she's got, you know, you can just, it's palpable, her, her sense of purpose. Having something to get up in the morning for, to, a reason to live, uh, actually adds life and, and uh, vigor mentally and physically. So, yeah, that's uh, the other thing, though, apart from just the, the you know, the psychological benefits of, of having purpose and, and maybe uh, continuing to create and contribute. Uh, well into our 90s and even into our hundreds is that we might have to, you know, I mean, if top of mind for many people when they consider what's a hundred year life going to look like for me is where the heck am I going to get enough money to pay a century's worth of bills? And so, you know, it certainly doesn't, you know, it doesn't suggest that we'll be able to, you know, stop at 65 or some, you know, pre uh, imagined age. We may well need to work into our 70s or even our 80s if we're going to be living into our hundreds like this. Uh, and, you know, that's going to be a problem for some people. I mean, for for those of us who can work in air conditioned buildings and do and do things that aren't physical, maybe that could work. Uh, but for many people, landscaping, construction, you know, many, many jobs uh, cannot reasonably be done by somebody in, in their 80s. Yes, manual labor. I'm going to come back to, to Jane Goodall because she's an icon. H how on earth did you get an interview with Jane Goodall? <laughs> <laughs> I just asked. I, I, I spent the three decades working for the Associated Press. And uh, so I, I was able to, you know, approach her. And, uh, and I'm, I'm just so, what a treasure she is. What, what an incredible hour we had together fantastic she is i'm curious you know i i think she screams purpose it's very clear she's doing exactly what she was meant and born to do i'm curious if there are any other takeaways from what she's doing so right beyond being like squarely on purpose well she's a person of hope you know and she you know her she's a prolific author as well so you know she's written a lot and her her most recent books are focusing on the power of hope and uh and positivity. And, and she's an extremely positive person. She's also a person of faith. She's a scientist. She sees no inconsistency between believing in God and, and then trying to unravel the secrets of the universe, you know? So she's just a really cool woman. And um, she's got a lot of these things going for her. She's also very, you know, lean and she walks a lot. She's kind of the whole package. Uh, she's kind of my, uh, you know, She's said, I want to be like Jane when I grow up. I, I think many of us do. Uh, I, I want to come back to the where we started with this 122-year-old woman from Paris. Joy was paramount. Like, tell us everything, what, what this woman was doing. She was a fascinating individual. You know, she, um, she took fencing lessons when she was 85 years old. That's a, kind of an intense, you know, sport to do. She was riding her bike uh, until she turned 100. And, um, you know, she, she eventually went into assisted living, but really kept her, uh, her wits about her. Uh, she, she was very, very uh, amusing. It, one of the stories that I covered was uh, when she recorded a rap album at 120, 121, 
which was really, you know, it's a little miss. She didn't strut across the stage like, you know, it, you know but she uh, she kind of, you know, murmured and talked along to a track um, and worked with some musicians. The the, um, the the name of the album was Time's Mistress. So she's just a really a cool, just a very interesting person. As I said, she was very, very uh, funny. Um, she once said, uh, I'm waiting for death and the journalists, which I thought was kind of funny. Just, you know, just very sort of the queen of one liners. Uh, and uh, yeah, you know, she didn't have an easy life. So she also was a resilient person. Uh, she lost her husband. I think he was uh, in his mid 40s. They were having a picnic. He ate some spoiled cherries, got botulism and died. And so for, you know, a, you know, for, you know, 60, 70 years more of life she had to do by herself. And so, you know, yet she was able to overcome that. Did she have children? She had uh, a daughter and um, and then she had a grandson she was very fond of. He was killed in a car accident as a young man. So, again, you know, she had sorrow and she outlived her daughter you know she outlived everyone uh you don't get to 122 years and 164 days uh with very much company well i think that's the thing too it's the it's the yes resilience plays a role but then the the pain when you're out living you know i can't even imagine parents worst nightmare uh outliving their child and then grandchild there's a lot of pain along the way yeah i'm curious did she have like a a routine and i'm thinking in the very parisian sense of you know she went to the same cafe every day and sat in the same place with the same order and she held court like was there anything like extraordinary or interesting about like her day-to-day routine uh not really except that you know she was a woman of privilege uh she never really had a career uh you know she 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 was uh you know she 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 was kind of you know she had money and means and, and was able to be fairly comfortable uh, that's that's something very interesting as well, because, you know, uh, rich people get more time. Uh, you know, in America, white uh, white people live longer than black people, you know, uh, and there are income disparities. There's a lot of inequity uh, in, in this calculation. But Jean Calmont um, did have some habits, but I wouldn't recommend them, to, really. She, used, she smoked two cigarettes a day up until... Up until her, I think she was around 120, and then she, the doctor said, hey, knock it off. And she would have a glass of port wine before meals every day. Uh, yeah, just one glass. You know, she loved chocolate. I'm like a lot of polyphenols. Well, you eat polyphenols and the chocolate and the wine and cigarettes, I can't help you with. But uh, look, I, I think what's interesting, too, is... It sounds like she was a curious purpose person because on one hand we're talking about retirement's the killer, but it sounds like this person didn't really work, had means, but like for some people who are wealthy and have means, they become very bored and have zero purpose and they become, they're, they're miserable. And it sounds like this person was able to, to find purpose even though she didn't work. I think that's interesting. I think that's a struggle for people. Yeah. And even, even at the very end of her incredibly long life, when she was, you know, uh, confined to a wheelchair, she couldn't, she wasn't mobile anymore. Uh, she basically even, um, you know, lost most of her sight and she was deaf. Uh, 
she was showing how to use a computer at 120 and set up a website and, you know, started surfing the net. I mean, she's definitely a curious individual. Not something you'd expect from somebody in their 120s. No, it's this, this, it's this curiosity. It's this desire to continually learn and improve. Because uh, there are statistics and, and, our Dan Butner from Blue Zones talks about this is that I forget the exact numbers, but once you go into an assisted living home, like you're, you're essentially like it's, it's not looking good in terms of your longevity. Um, so that's interesting. Yeah. You know, I think it just speaks to uh, the, uh, the remarkable uh, role that our brains and our minds play in our aging journey in, in our lives. You know, I mean, we are not, bags of protoplasm, you know, uh, with a head stuck on top, you know, I mean, we tend to think of, of our, of our organism as just that, you know, a, a, we're a, we're a biological thing and we divorce that from the psychological and these things are incredibly intertwined. And so, yeah, so being positive, being curious, having purpose, being joyful, uh, all of these things, uh, you know, and, and of course, being in community with people, uh, all of these things really can move the needle in terms of not just a, you know, a long life, but a healthy life. Yes. You know, I want to I come back to faith again, because I think this is one I don't think we talk about enough. Whenever I get the opportunity here, I like to go deeper on this one because we tend to discount it. You know, we talked about the community aspect of maybe going to church or, or wherever uh, your place of worship might be or what that looks like. But you also talk about in the book, you know, what prayer and meditation and faith can do in terms of stress relieving, excuse me, stress, relieving stress, not stress relieving. So let's talk a bit about those benefits. Yeah. You know, I think uh, those of us who have uh, done some meditation, some prayer, uh, quieting ourselves, breathing, uh, and exhaling. These are things common to many faiths and, uh, and they have enormous benefits. I mean, I, I like to, uh, goof around in my annual physical when my doctor comes in to take my blood pressure and I, I've just taken some very deep breaths and, and sort of centered myself and, uh, and then my blood pressure is already really low and my heart rate is low because of running but I can make it go even lower. And then he's like, are you okay? <laughs> you know, but these are the things that, you know, obviously there are aspects of, of our faith if we're, if we're a believing person um, that can help us with our stress. Uh, uh, we, can, we can unload uh, to, to God uh, and, and, in prayer and, and with each other. And, uh, and it, it makes a difference, you know. Uh, incidentally, there's only one blue zone in the United States, as you know, and that's Loma Linda, California, which is probably not coincidentally a base of the Seventh Day Adventist Church. And there have been studies of that group, of that cohort, and they they tend to live about ten years longer than the rest of us. And and you know, much has has been uh, said and written about you know their faith. And the, and the various knock-on effects, if you will, of, of being together and believing. And then, of course, the, the cleaner lifestyle that generally accompanies that. Yeah, I, 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 I'm glad you pointed that out. And something, and, and Dan is a, a great friend. He also lives in Miami. 
we hang out quite often, and I, I would say this to Dan, I think my take on the Blue Zones is it's really about the faith, purpose, and connection, and the, and the constant daily, like the daily movement. Diet, eh, we could talk about. I think that varies. I think where the more we learn about nutrition, as I mentioned earlier, it's very personalized. Some people can eat red meat all day; others can't touch it, and that's just a variable. Uh, but but those three are really paramount, and we tend not to talk about them because the science is still iffy, if you will. There's some great science around the power of, of faith in the brine, like people like Dr. Ellen Langer from, from Harvard, we've had on the show and some others doing some great work, work on that, but it's not as clear cut. And I think we all like to be in control. Tell me, tell me what my, tell me what my blood pressure should be, doc. Yeah, that's, that's right. Absolutely. You know, and this is why the genetics piece of, of longevity, which is undeniable, um, unsettles us, you know, because it's sort of like, it's like a fait accompli. It's a, it's a done deal. And, you know, and, and, and some of us are tempted at that point to raise our hands in the air and go, well, shoot, you know, either I've got good genes or I don't and, uh, or, or ill fitting genes, as I like, like to say. Uh -huh. So you mentioned Dr. David Sinclair, who's been on the show, uh, who, who goes as far as saying aging should be classified as a disease, which Many people have a strong response to. I'm curious, what's your view on on that statement? It's an interesting idea. You know, honestly, clearly, it, you know, it, fundamentally, he's right. I mean, you know, everyone eventually uh, dies of old age. I mean, if it, you know, it's the, the queen. I just noticed they in Britain uh, they finally issued the death certificate or made it public for Queen Elizabeth II and. It said old age. <laughs> so, I mean, that was her cause of death. Uh, you can quarrel with that. I mean, I, you know, I've heard a lot of doctors say that uh, everyone actually dies of cardiac arrest, right? So, you know, ultimately, but... Ultimately, your heart gives out. That's right, you know, for whatever reason. But I think um, David Sinclair is on to something. Uh, and and I think a motivation for for that uh, attitude and for that... that uh, point of view that age is a disease is that maybe it, maybe aging research will get more funded. You know, I mean, there are so many millions and billions actually going to just specific diseases like Alzheimer's, which, you know, most of us will never get. And I applaud the research, obviously, and anyone who's had anything to do with someone who's had Alzheimer's knows what a heartbreak that, that can be. And, and we all fear that you know, or other kinds of dementia. But, you know, they, you know, it's well-funded. Um, what's not so well-funded is just, you know, the basics. Um, and so I think, you know, Sinclair is trying to get at that. If we can just, you know, look at aging as a disease, let's get more money to, you know, to see how we might be able to counter it. And, and uh, we can, we'll never probably have a cure. So, David is definitely a tinkerer, and I think what he's doing is interesting. He's leveraging pharmaceutical interventions. He's doing experiments on himself. And in the book, you you talk about a couple, three emerging technologies that you, that you think are really going to help us in the future. Gene therapy, immunotherapy, and radiopharmaceuticals. Can you briefly touch on those three? Sure. I mean, I'll start with immunotherapy. You know, um, 
I'm 63, and in my lifetime, uh, you know, when when I heard that somebody had cancer, uh, the whole room grew quiet. You know, it was it was kind of a uh, very often it, it was like pronouncing a death sentence on somebody, and that, that's not the case. We started our conversation by mentioning that cancers are increasing, uh, especially in younger people. Uh, but, you know, so are uh, cure rates, you know, and uh, immunotherapy activating the, the T cells that in our bodies to fight uh, those cancerous cells without the, uh, the, the horrible, you know, surgery, without necessarily radiation or chemotherapy, or maybe in, in tandem with one or, or both of those, the outcomes are great. Uh, certainly better, far, vastly better than they used to be. So that's that's great. Gene therapy is still something that's you know a work in progress, but uh, already we're seeing uh, some results. You know, we're we're able to uh, identify uh, defects uh, in our genetic code and 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 fix those things. So it's in its infancy, but it shows great great promise in terms of you know fixing. For example, uh, you know I, I I had a friend whose father died of a massive heart attack at 45. And then when he, as he approached 45, of course, he was really concerned, you know. Uh, I think his grandfather had actually also died at 45. So it, it almost felt like the sword of Damocles. Um, you know, gene therapy is trying to answer that kind of a dilemma. Do I have a gene that is is means, you know, my heart's going to, you know, uh, go into a massive arrest at 45, for some reason, can that gene be uh, disrupted in some way? So I have a similar, I'm 49. My father died of heart disease at, I want to say 47. And my other grandfather, heart disease at 49. So that's like top of, top of mind for me. And why I am very optimistic about my longevity is there's all sorts of testing you can do now. I can do extensive blood work where I can look at ApoB or LP little a to get a, you know an idea of my risk. I can do an MRI scan. There's a scan called Clearly, which is like a 3D MRI of the heart and the surrounding vessels to get an idea of the hard and soft plaque everywhere. So like I can very much, and there are other tests to find out if there's something structurally wrong, uh, which which I don't have. So it's great if you are that person because a lot of people have family histories, whether it's heart disease, it's cancer, it's Alzheimer's. You can do a lot of testing to get ahead of it and get an understanding of your risk and then make the necessary lifestyle modifications or pharmaceutical interventions in some cases so that you can minimize that risk as much as possible, which I think is empowering. You know, your genes... Your genes are not your destiny to some degree. They account for a hell of a lot, but they're not your destiny. That's right. Exactly. You know, of course, there's also, um, you know, early detection, uh, which is helping us uh, immensely. And and we have technology and AI to thank for some of that. Uh, you know, many of us have an Apple watch that we wear around. And, you know, th those things have saved lives by detecting, you know, changes in blood pressure, heartbeat, and, and, and heart rate, and so forth. We can probably expect a lot more of that sort of thing. In fact, Stanford University's Center on Longevity uh, uh, is projecting that half of all five-year-olds alive right now will live to 100. 
and they base that on this you know these technological advances uh they they envision um the five-year-olds are, you know, my grandson, one of my grandsons is five, you know, that he'll eventually have some kind of a, a wearable device or a, or a skin of some kind, you know, even if it's just a sleeve or something that will, um, you know, keep very close, close tabs on his vitals and uh, transmit all of that in real time to a doctor, you know, in, in terms of stroke, which is still a leading killer in the United States. I mean, this could, this could absolutely be a game changer. So also radio pharmaceuticals. I've heard of pharmaceuticals, but radio pharmaceuticals, not so much. Yeah, it's kind of slow release of, of uh, you know, uh, of medicines that can, you know, uh, alter uh, what's going on, you know, attacking cancer, planting a little tiny thing uh, right in, in the tumor that can, uh, can uh, you know, act over time. Again, you know, avoiding, uh, you know, drastic surgical uh, situations, which, you know, honestly, what, what an awful fate that befell so many generations of people who were just carved up. And, uh, you know, so now we have, we, thank God we have some, some alternatives. Yeah. You know, look, surgery saves lives. Sur surgery helps repair people, but at the same time, you know, uh, I don't want to scare anyone who's getting surgery, but a lot, a lot can go wrong. There's complications, there's infection, there's, then you're laid up. And then if you're laid up and you can't do the things you want to do, then there's a the depression and mobility, you lose muscle mass, hope. And then as we all know, like getting back, once you like start to lose, like you become lonely and lose hope, it's like, oh. Yeah, you've, you're sort of sucked into the vortex and, and everything cascades from there. So it's, it's, it's very, very serious, you know. It should be avoided at, at all costs. You know, the court of last resort. Right? Yes. So I'm curious, in closing, what are the things that you've incorporated into your, your daily life based on all of your longevity research? Yeah. So, well, I mentioned at the outset that um, I left uh, full-time journalism. As I was researching the book, I realized that uh, being on call all the time and uh, having to, you know, jump into action at a moment's notice uh, was just not good for my mental health. And uh, I love journalism. I've been a journalist for 40 years, but it, it felt like it was time to, you know, kind of break out of that and um, and shed that that toxic stress. You know, a lot of us go around saying, oh, I'm so stressed out. There's a difference between uh you know, the stress is on a continu continuum like everything else. And some of us can kind of flippantly and glibly use that phrase. Uh, but there are people who are under real stress. And I'm thinking predominantly uh, people on the lower end of the economic scale who are wondering how to put food on the table, how to feed their kids and pay their heating bill at the same time, working multiple jobs, things like that. So I think, you know, uh, Try anything we can do, absolutely anything we can do to re reduce our stress is, is a win. And that's what I did was just get out of the newsroom, you know, and, uh, and write books. <laughs> you know. And your last point regarded lower income folks. And I, and I by no means want to minimize the real stress that people have when they're worried about putting food on the table or clothes on their children's backs or, or safety. Um, and, don't want to minimize that at all, but I think the interesting thing we're finding out is 
some of those children are happier than children in affluent, highly educated areas. That I think that's an interesting paradox. Uh, and, and some of the takeaways from people like Dr. Lisa Miller we've had on the show is, you know, the relationship with the parents, how parents in those uh, more affluent, highly educated areas uh, have a more transactional relationship where a lot of what the discussions around performance, it's not how are you feeling, it's how do you do on the test. I think that's interesting. I think it's sad. And I think that's something a lot of people are paying more attention to. Yeah, well, you know, we spent some time talking about loneliness. And um, in in my city, in Providence, Rhode Island, uh, there are, we have a large Latino population, and a lot of uh, those households are uh, multi-generational households. So you've got three generations in the same home, or a triple-decker, where you've got, you know, the parents with the young kids, uh, you know, on one floor, and, and then elders on, on another, and that, you know, people are doing life together. They're ha- they're having meals together. Uh, the elders are looking after the the kids so that the the um, the folks can get to work and and so forth. And in doing life like that, there's just never a dull moment. There's just a lot of life and laughter in the house. And and that that's a page from a playbook that we might want to consider. You know, again, uh, is it really great to? amass wealth and then live all by ourselves in a big house on a hill where no one comes to visit us doesn't sound that great to me 100 percent agreed uh i know we've covered a lot today is there anything we didn't cover that you'd like to touch on before we close or perhaps leave some words of wisdom with our audience i think uh, just that you know we, we need to be mindful that there are things we can do to affect uh our destiny and uh you know again it's not all about living longer, but living more healthy lives. No conversation about uh, lifespan is complete without a discussion of health span, the, the amount of time that we have, but we can enjoy. Yeah. You know. Enjoy. What's the point of being healthy, healthy if you're not having fun? Yeah. It's about, it's about adding life to our years as much as it is about adding years to our life. Yes. Bill, thank you so much. It's a pleasure. May you live a hundred years. Too. <laughs> Happy. Happy, happy hundred, happy and healthy. Yes. <laughs>